I'm Nick Spencer, and this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about the human brain, meritocracy, inequality, dementia, and human rights. question of rights divides us. Not in the sense that the courts are often called on to adjudicate between different rights claims, though that happens often enough, but in a more foundational sense. For many people, rights are self-evidently right, the proper way to navigate our moral and public life. They are, in the words of one book title, values for a godless age. For others, though, they are the paradigmatic example of the kind of possessive individualism that erodes our common life. Accordingly, having a measured discussion on what's right and what's wrong with rights is not as easy as you might hope. That, however, is what Nigel Bigger, Regius Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford University, has done with his book What's Wrong with Rights? It's a forensic, historical, philosophical and moral critique of rights, far less hostile than that of some contemporary theologians, but nonetheless critical in its approach, as its title suggests. Nigel, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks very much, Nick. I'm glad to be here. It's a bit mundane to begin a discussion like this with definitions, but there's an awful lot of vagueness and confusion in the terms that are used in this debate. So I think we have to. So by way of starting, can you tell us a little bit about what the difference is between, say, a natural right and a human right and a legal or a positive right? Let me start with the last, the legal right, which is the one that's most obvious to us. I think of a right as a social institution whereby we make more secure certain liberties or freedoms or our access to certain valuable things like welfare benefits or whatever it is. So the law tells us we have a right to freedom and behind the law lies the police and the courts and prison. In other words, there is the threat of sanction if people violate our rights. That's why they're made more secure. Now, I think that legal right is really the paradigm, it's the the primary sense of what we mean by a right. Now, in contrast, a natural right is supposed to be a right that exists outside of any human society. It could exist where human society has collapsed into civil war. It doesn't exist much these days insofar as the, the whole globe is now populated by states and much of it's covered by international law. But in the past, there were parts of the world where there were no states and there was no uh, recognised international law. So you have a kind of a space that has no legal rights. And some people have reckoned that, nevertheless, there are natural moral rights that exist there. So natural moral rights exist independent of any human activity, human institution, that's the theory, whereas legal rights are dependent on the societies we create. That's exactly right. That's right. Now, a human right is... is is somewhere in between those. The, the concept of a human right came into popularity after the Second World War with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And they have a kind of legal 
status insofar as states have subscribed to them, but often they're rather more vague and more general than rights you'd find in a, in a given legal system. And until you get things like the European Court of Human Rights, these human rights don't really have much bite. They're kind of intermediary between natural rights and legal rights, but they have a, they have a kind of vague legal quality to them. People also talk about subjective rights and about absolute rights. Can you briefly explain what they are? The notion of a subjective right, which has become controversial among some Christian ethicists, is the idea of a right as a property, belongs to me as an individual subject. And some people have thought that that implies a kind of radical individualism and a kind of egoism, a selfish egoism that attaches to rights. An absolute right is supposed to be a right that applies always and everywhere, regardless of circumstances. So the paradigm of an absolute right would be such a thing as as a right against torture. You begin the book by going into the historical background of rights and the different routes that different scholars perceive that the concept of natural rights, indeed rights generally speaking, have. I'm struck by the fact that so many different scholars come up with so many different answers to this question. And some trace the idea of rights back to canon lawyers in the 12th and 13th century, some back to William of Ockham and a particular dispute between Franciscans and the Pope in the 14th century, some to Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher in the 17th century, and some even go further back than any of those and argue that there's a concept of rights, perhaps implicitly in the teaching of the Church Fathers with regards to property. Can you tell us where you would fit on this very wide spectrum, but also why it matters? I do think that the concept of a right as the property of an individual certainly goes back beyond the Enlightenment. And I say that because lots of people think that rights are inventions of the modern Enlightenment in contrast to the unenlightened pre-modern Christian period. And that's just not true. Clearly, the concept of a natural right and a legal right you can find in early medieval times. Do we find the concept of a right before then? I think we, we probably do. Although if you read the New Testament or the Old Testament, you won't find much rights talk. You'll find lots of talk about what's morally right. You won't find a whole lot of rights talk. Although I suspect if I were to scrutinise a legal system in first century Palestine or ancient Israel, you probably would find some, something equivalent to a legal right. Well, I think that this is a really important distinction to draw out because a lot of people might see little difference between talking about that which is right, that which is morally right, and people having rights. Yes. They might say, well, basically, I mean, what's the difference between a single letter here? But actually, there is a significant difference, isn't there? And it's to do with really almost like how you morally frame these issues. Yeah. What's the difference? Okay. Let me give you an example. In the ethics of war, it is morally wrong for me to kill you if you're doing nothing wrong. If I can avoid killing you, I shouldn't kill you. So you could say that you, Nick, have a right against being killed under those conditions. You could say that. But if it so happens that you've pitched your tent next to a military objective of an unjust enemy, then I'm allowed to target the unjust enemy knowing that I might actually kill you, and not because I intend to, but just because there's no other way of getting the unjust enemy in this 
in this situation. And because of the change of circumstance, all of a sudden, you have no right. <laughs> it's a tragedy that you have to die as an innocent, but you have no right. Now, we could talk about rights in that way. You could say, in these circumstances, suddenly I have a right, and then turn the corner, and you have no right. We could do that, but I think it's misleading because I think the concept of a right is legal. And when you say someone has a right, it implies that it's in their possession. They have a certain assurance that it's there, that they can exercise it. So my view is that what's moral does depend on circumstances, and it does change according to circumstances. And that to introduce the language of rights into morality confuses and leads people to suppose that their security is actually greater than it is. <laughs> We're going to head towards that direction because okay. the book is called What's Wrong With Rights? But before we get there, I think it's very important to talk a little bit about what's right with rights. And yes. we do this because there have been a number of Christian theologians and philosophers and ethicists over recent years who have, as it were, given rights both barrels and see nothing yep. but selfish, possessive individualism in very talk and activity of rights. That's the view I think you might have some sympathy with, but you certainly don't go all that way. And you are critical of those who are totally critical of rights as well. You're prepared to say that there are goods that rights legitimately seek and achieve. So tell us a bit about what's right with rights, yeah, first yeah. of all. So you're quite correct. There are some Christian theologians who think that the whole concept of an individual subjective right is tied to radical individualism, a sort of atomistic individualism, and is basically a vehicle for selfishness. And I disagree with that, partly because historically, the concept of a right goes well beyond the likes of Thomas Hobbes, and it's Thomas Hobbes who tends to be identified with that radical individualism, it goes way beyond Hobbes, back into the 13th century. And there we find what's obviously right with rights, and that is that the concept of a right belonging to an individual or even sometimes a community is developed to fend off overweening interference, sometimes by papal authorities if we're in the medieval period and also by state authorities. And it doesn't take much to understand why that's sometimes important. So legal rights are really important means of securing individuals and communities against unjust interference, particularly by the state, but it could also be by other bodies too. There's a, a live criticism of rights that you talk a bit about in your book, which is that they are the latest form of Western imperialism, that they originate in Christendom or perhaps early modernity. They're imported by Western cultures across the globe and that they don't have any resonance with, and they are, in fact, an imposition on many cultures that aren't Western. You take issue with that, don't you? Yes, I do, in two ways. First of all, we, we can't really draw a sharp distinction between East and West this because there are plenty of Western critics of rights, not just the East. But also because if you look at, let's say, Confucian tradition in Asia, or if you look at African traditions, you will find weak versions of rights. So these societies understand that individuals ought not to be arbitrarily murdered, <laughs> and therefore they put in place certain social protections, which may not be quite as strong as the protections we're used to, but they are protections. So the underlying concepts resonate across the world, even if the specific 
language of rights doesn't. Yes, and I think an important point here is the level of political development. I think it's not a coincidence that legal rights have developed and multiplied in the West where we have developed very strong states. <laughs> in parts of the world, and indeed in our own history in the past, when the state is weaker, the need for individual rights is less obvious. And it's been pointed out, I think, that in the late 15th and early 16th centuries in Europe, because that's a period of political disintegration, when states are weak, you don't find them talking about rights at all. Presumably because you can talk to your blue in the face about rights in a middle of an anarchy, no one's going to pay any attention to you because you've got no political strength to draw on to actually implement those rights. That's exactly so. That underlines the point that the primary sense of a right is a legal institution that secures certain good things because there are strong institutions. Where those institutions have collapsed, talk about legal right is a fantasy. This moves us one step closer to one of the really important criticisms of rights. But just before we do, there's one other positive aspect of rights that I think it's worth highlighting. You mentioned it a few times in the book. It's a bit ambiguous, really, but it's the sense that rights are aspirational. Putting aside the extent to which they may or may not be realisable in certain societies or not, there's an element of almost moral exhortation talking about rights in the sense that, you know, if you're talking about rights, you implicitly have a high view of human dignity and value and that you can envisage a future in which that value, that dignity is honoured. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Do you think there's any way that there's a rhetorical strength to rights that's really works in their favour? I, I guess I'm on two minds about that. There's certainly certain parts of the world where I think the aspiration to secure rights against an abusive state it makes perfect sense. The danger with a kind of inflated rights aspiration is that you raise expectations to an impossible level because rights gather their strength from strong social institutions, from strong state backing. The more rights you multiply, the greater the burden on the state, the greater the burden on the police, on the courts. And the truth is, if we didn't notice it before, we have limited resources. And so there's a danger in demanding too much of the state. Therefore, I think in those rights that we aspire to secure, we need to be discriminate uh, and make sure we we secure the important ones. Mm. Well, let's talk about what's specifically what's wrong with rights. And we've already hinted at a few of those areas. But I want to begin with the very important point of when human rights discourse passes into mainstream political vocabulary, which is in the 30s and 40s. And you make this point several times very acutely in the book. We start talking about human rights in the face of vast, overweening, aggressive, totalitarian states. So it's almost as if the roots of rights in contemporary discourse is set against overpowerful, unjust and often violent states. And as such, they're doing a very good job in that context, but we're not in that context, at least in the West, we're not in that context now. And moving out of that context means that rights almost don't serve the same function or can't serve the same function as they originally were intended to. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, since the Second World War, the notion of welfare rights has multiplied. So this is not merely fending off 
interference in securing liberty, liberty rights, but also obliging the state to supply various kinds of good or welfare. So that has changed. The scope of rights has ballooned. And, and again, the problem with that is some states can bear it, and not all states can. I guess the problem with a lot of rights rhetoric is it doesn't seem to realise that rights cost. <laughs> and the governments have to make priorities. Often in, in rights discussion, rights talk, rights rhetoric, there's not much consideration of the cost. So there's a kind of, is it virtue signalling or is it an idealism that could devalue the currency? Well, that was kind of what I was getting at with a point about the 1940s and 50s, because in the initial framing, if you like, it's almost as if rights are the weapons that individuals can deploy against states, because states yeah. are the bad guys at the time. In our current context, you need the state to enforce the rights you claim. Otherwise, they're not really worth the paper that they're written on. Yeah, that's correct. So when you come to a situation where you've got a weak state, I give an example in, in the book of, of Rwanda after the, the genocide, and when human rights activists are lobbying for those accused of committing crimes of genocide to be supplied with lawyers to give them counsel for the defence in a situation where there are no lawyers because they've all fled or they're dead. And then the reports have it that members of the Rwandan government started to stop listening to the rights lobbyists. Why? Because the lobbyists were demanding the impossible. That's the danger of banging on rights too much in situations where the resources are not there to supply the rights. And it underlines the critical importance of context, doesn't it? Rwanda is one context. Another one that you bring out very significantly in the book, because I know it's a particular area of interest to you, is military conflict, the context of military engagement. Yes. And how, without recognising the peculiarities of those conditions, and in particular the extent to which there is stable political control and authority in an area... Yes. Talking of rights can actually do more harm than it actually does good. That's the point you, you draw out in particular, isn't it? Yes. So that, that was in relation to some court case before the European Court in 2011 to do with the conduct of British troops in Iraq in 2006. And my main complaint was that the court decided that certain rights that we have under the European Convention in Europe, which makes sense in a peaceful, prosperous context didn't make sense to apply to Basra in 2006, which was on the verge of anarchy. My view is that in those almost anarchical conditions where the state as a whole is on the verge of collapsing, and when that happens, as we've discussed before, there is no protection, there are no rights. In those situations, to demand the same kind of rights is imprudent. What do you say to those who respond to this question of context by saying, well, there are huge swathes of the world at the moment where any form of human rights are more or less ignored or at least treated very lightly, you know, China and Russia and so on and so forth. Surely if we stopped talking about rights, if we stopped having that aspirational sense of what rights accord to human beings and how governments should honour them, if we stop doing that, you're going to have even less chance of China and Russia respecting human worth. Isn't the need for rights talk underlined by the fact that so many governments actually ignore it. Yeah, so I'm not at all advocating that we stop talking about rights, certainly not that we stop asserting the need for certain states to observe 
rights. But I, I do think we need to take context into account. So I, mean, I just suggested that when a state is on the verge of collapse, it may well be morally prudent to allow the agents of the state more leeway than they would have when the state is not on, in that parlous situation. So the question to put to the Communist Party of China is, are you really in that condition? Can you really not afford to grant rights of free speech? Are you that precarious? That does depend on a, an assessment of political and social context. So in my view, you can't make an absolutist argument. It requires a lot of empirical evidence. But I think you should gather the evidence and make the argument and say to China, in these conditions, you really can afford to permit greater freedom of speech, for example, whereas uh, other states on the verge of anarchy can't, uh, but you're not there. So it's not a matter of, of ceasing to talk, nor is it a matter of ceasing to press states. It is a matter of deploying the right kind of arguments behind your assertion. We've talked about the problems there are around rights talk in certain contexts, and in particular contexts in which the state is too weak or fragile to honour them. But there is also a very powerful critique of rights. Uh, they are sometimes deployed in Western cultures in your book. And one of the lines that really stood out for me was when you say at one point, there's a tendency for today's right talk to suck the oxygen out of any other kind of moral discourse. Yeah. Unpack <laughs> that for us. Okay. Uh, I can best unpack it by giving an example. And it's, it's a rather sensitive example right now because of what's recently happened in France. But I will give the example and then tell you that if you don't agree with my judgment of the example, at least you'll get the point. So the example has to do with the terrible murders of journalists in the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris in 2015. Charlie Hebdo, this satirical magazine, had published cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad that annoyed various Muslims. And uh, unfortunately, some Muslims took it into their heads to go and slaughter journalists in the Charlie Hebdo office. Now, in the immediate aftermath of that, everybody was saying, and I understand this and I, I support it, that the right to freedom of speech is really important. And people went on marches around Paris and London to make that point. But I thought to myself, yes, that really is the legal right to freedom of speech is really important. But within the freedom that the law gives us, there are always moral responsibilities, moral duties. And notice this word duty is not the same word as a right, moral duties. And one duty, as I see it, is to use my freedom of speech responsibly Certainly to tell the truth, and to tell the truth even if other people don't like the truth they're being told, but not to say things just because I like to spit in other people's sacred cows, just because I like to get them annoyed, just because I like to provoke. In my view, one shouldn't do that, morally speaking. One ought to be uh, self-restrained, one ought to be temperate, one ought to be charitable, one ought to be just. Now, self-restrained, temperate, charitable, we're talking about virtues now. So we've gone from rights, I've talked about duties, I'm not talking about virtues. The problem with rights talk, as I see it, is somehow, for some reason, it seems to exclude talk about other really important moral factors like duties and virtues. There's a deep biblical route to that particular argument, isn't there? I think at one point you talk about Paul's first letter to the Corinthians when he's essentially undergoing a similar kind of argument there about there are certain things that these new Christians are able to do. It's permissible now, but just because it's permissible 
doesn't mean it's advisable or a responsible thing to do. Or charitable. Yeah, so I mean, he's, he's arguing for Christians out of love for the hypersensitivity of fellow Christians not to do things that otherwise they would be perfectly at liberty to do. There's another way in which rights talk can corrupt our ethical discourse. If that first way is just pushing ethical discourse around duty and virtues completely out of the frame, there's also a way in which it can introduce a degree of legality an almost inflexible legality into our moral discussions. You say at one point it has the risk of introducing a whiff of the courtroom into moral discussion. So what's the problem with the courtroom coming in? I guess it's partly, you know, we talked earlier about morality is flexible, not because there aren't principles, but because uh, what's required changes according to circumstance. And the problem with courts is they tend to be far more rigid and unable to adapt and respond to changes of circumstance. I think that's partly what I meant by that. Did you think I meant something else? (laughs) I think it was more along the lines that it brings centre stage the recipient dimension of wrongdoing. So by changing our ethical discourse into an entirely rights-based ethical discourse, the people who are left on stage don't really have agency. They're people who are owed things rather than people who can do things. That's correct. That may connect our obsession with rights talk with our tendency toward victimhood culture. Hmm. And this goes back to the earlier point about other important dimensions of morality. If I have a right, then for that right to be effective in getting me the goods or the liberty I deserve, it does does depend on other citizens being capable of the kind of self-restraint necessary to give me the space the law says I should have. Because... It's not enough to have a law that says I have a certain right to freedom. If there are citizens who are constantly violating that right, then we might find that the forces of law and order don't have the power to to manage them. There's a third, I think, very important critique you level at rights, at least in their current formulation, which is that of, if you like, inflation or expansion. And you talk about this in particular detail in, the, I think it's the anti-penultimate chapter in the book, with regards to certain judicial decisions in Canada. Yes. The idea that some legal philosophers have, well, Dworkin, I think you mentioned in particular, that in actual fact courts are better places to adjudicate on these things, and not just these specific cases, but to adjudicate on the issue of rights in society, than parliaments, because parliaments are amenable to majoritarianism and realpolitik and, and all the rest of it. And you strongly push back against that, don't you? Yes, I do. So this has to do with the uh, creation by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2015, effectively, of a right to assisted suicide, because they said that the failure of the Canadian Parliament to legislate within certain conditions for the freedom to have assistance in suicide was contrary to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And my view is, on the issue of whether we should legislate for assisted suicide, my view is that there are arguments on both sides and that there's no clear, decisive answer to give. What answer you give will depend heavily on your estimation of how effective certain safeguards will be, on whether the high esteem we have for human life right now is not something we can take for granted we'll hold forever. But these are controversial matters in which citizens have different points of view. And because it's controversial... And because there are reasons on both sides, 
I think it's really important that whatever decision we make, we make through Parliament and not through courts. And the reason for that is that suppose the next vote on this issue goes against my own preferred position, which is that we should not legalise assisted suicide. Well, I will be disappointed, but I will know that my voice has been heard because I will have lobbied my MP and I will have written to newspapers. And I also know that I have the option of getting the decision reversed through political lobbying. And for that reason, I will swallow this defeat. If, however, a court of, what, seven, nine, twelve judges decides to make that decision for me, I will not swallow it so easily. Partly because, <laughs> in my case, I've written a book about this. I know quite a lot about the morality of euthanasia, and most judges, even in the Supreme Court, haven't. So I think it's a matter, really, of, of democratic legitimacy and of mm. uh, social acceptance Mm. Uh, of certain decisions, that it's really important that Parliament deals with these controversial issues on which there are reasons on both sides. I, I often wonder whether that is the reason why the question of abortion is a highly sensitive one in this country and a more or less hysterical one in the US, because however you may, whatever you may think of Parliament's decision on abortion in the UK, as you say, it's not a whipped vote. You can try and influence your MP. You know that it is debated and discussed. Whereas since Roe v. Wade in the US, it's simply a matter of Supreme Court judges. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to try and persuade people's opinion if you're a citizen who disagrees with Roe v. Wade, except yes. except perhaps try and elect a president who will put conservative justices on the bench to get your way, which seems to be rather circumventing the whole purpose of a constitution of the Supreme Court. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, whatever you think about British views of abortion, it is less inflammatory uh, precisely because the decision was made by Parliament and not by what could be fairly called, if slightly provocatively, a judicial oligarchy. And I mean a group of nine to ten people, nine to twelve people, whatever it is, they get to decide for the whole of society what we will do on this issue. And I think courts need to be very cautious about presuming to make highly controversial judgments. You say at one point, towards the end of the book, and behind rights fundamentalism appear to lie a secularised version of biblical religion – and it would be easy for someone to say, well, that's a kind of a, a soundbite or just an attack, were it not for the fact that, I remember there's a book, I think it's by Francesca Klug, called Human Rights Values for a Godless Age. So there is something in human rights discourse and those particularly who advocate it and push it, who do see it as a, almost like a replacement for the kind of values and the commitment to humans made in the image of God, that would have historically rested on theological foundations. Do you think that's right? Yes, I think that is right. And I, I suppose the, the feature of this rights fundamentalism is perfectionism. There is a notion that if we just have more and more rights, we can abolish evil and injustice. And as a Christian, I do think we are, we are obliged to strive for justice as best we can till our dying breath. But I also recognise that there's an awful lot of tragedy in, in human life and that sometimes by pressing toward certain kinds of justice, one can multiply injustice and that sometimes it's better to compromise. The book is called 
What's Wrong with Rights? Nigel, thank you very much for speaking to Reading Our Times. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity, Nick. Next week, I'll be speaking to Ian McGilchrist about his book, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. There's a tendency in science, if you accept that these things exist, to say that we make them up to cheer ourselves up. I believe this is not the case. I think that actually a a proper examination of the world in a relatively dispassionate way would lead one to think it much more probable that there is something that corresponds to what this divine is than that there isn't. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team also includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast.